Make sure that you're, you know, you know the tenants of writing. Make sure you know who the notables are in the industry and you know who to follow and you stay tapped into who's next. Because at the end of the, the day, those things will be what keeps you around. I was lucky in that I learned how to do a lot of things, which at the time I didn't necessarily realize were all going to serve me in the, way, the ways that they have. But I do think that it's the reason why I've been able to maintain such a long career. You have to be malleable and flexible. This is What's Next podcast with Yumindi Francis. We're talking fashion, business, and what's next. Let's go. Muriel Bobo is a publishing industry veteran with over two decades of fashion, beauty, and lifestyle media experience. She is currently the editor-in-chief and senior vice president of programming at Ebony Media. Following its relaunch under new ownership, Bobo is charged with leading Ebony's strategic expansion as a digital-first brand honoring the core elements of its 77-year legacy. Innovative storytelling, compelling imagery, original reporting, and long and short-form content creation through a contemporary lens, fresh perspectives, and strong voices. Muriel has ushered in a new chapter for the brand via a refreshed design, a reimagined editorial focus, and award-winning digital covers that have produced viral moments attracting partners including Netflix, Olay, and Google, to name a few. What's next podcast? Please welcome my friend and total boss, Muriel Bobo, to the show. Hi, Muriel. Huh? How are you? I'm so excited. Thank you for having me. I Having you, you're such a busy <laughs> woman. I can't believe that you're sitting here in the studio and um, we managed to make the time. Of you're course. trapezing all over the place running this, this enterprise. Yes, <laughs> to say the least. But I'm so excited to be here with you and yeah. to talk about all things publishing. I know, I know. Fun fact, Muriel and I went to high school together. Yes. So it's been an incredible experience watching your rise and rise through the years in, in the publishing space. And there's so much I want to talk to you about, so much that I want to share. You're such a force. Um, the quiet storm, I call you. <laughs> and um, yeah, let's get into it. So tell us, how did you start this journey? Oh, boy. Well, first off, I want to say thank you for that. And I'm so honored to be here with you and so proud of you and your journey as well. So thank you for having me. Thank you, dear. Um, <laughs> but how did I start? Let's see, without making this long winded. <laughs> you can. It's never going to um, be. Trust um, me, you, you'll be fine. It started with my grandmother. Um, I, I lost my grandmother recently. Sorry. Um, thank you. Um, but she would have been 98 this year. And she was the first person who exposed me to magazines. I used to go to her house all the time. And she had brawled out across her coffee table all of the fashion magazines and many of the, um, you know, lifestyle publications, one of which, of course, was Ebony Magazine. Um, Nana was older than Ebony. <laughs> Ebony is 78 years old almost, and Nana was would have been 98. So she really coveted that magazine. She had laminated copies of Ebony throughout oh. the house. And I spent many a night sitting with her just looking through the magazine and looking at the photo shoots and seeing all these beautiful Black men and women. And that was where I first kind of developed this love of magazines. I saw the care that she took um, and how she um, maintain the quality of the magazines and how she treated them as these kind of works of art. And that kind of fostered in me this love of, of publishing and this love of magazines and the photo shoots. And that kind of planted this bug in my ear early on um, to want to pursue a career in publishing. So got to say it started with Nana. 
started with Nana. <laughs> That's such a beautiful, beautiful Tome. I love it. That story. So you went to college. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you graduate. Yeah. And how do you get into this industry? Yeah. So I'll say when I started out, I knew I wanted to work in journalism. I went to Howard for, for journalism, um, but I also had a love of fashion. And so when I graduated from Howard, I went to FIT. Um, but I didn't quite know how I would get my foot in the door. You know, back then it wasn't like careers in fashion publishing were really, um, you know, something that we, we really tangible. saw anything about. Yeah, yeah it wasn't tan tangible. And then coming from a Caribbean household, my family is Haitian. It was like, that's not a real job. Like, how are you going to make some money? It's, that's not it. So right. it wasn't really something that my family was pushing for me to do necessarily. Um, but while I was at Howard, I started working on a lot of the fashion shows. And anyone that's been to the, the HBCU fashion shows knows that it's like the mini New York Fashion Week. Right. <laughs> you know, the kids <laughs> take the fashion seriously. And, um, you know, and back then that was how I first kind of started being exposed to just fashion. And there were a lot of um, like Rockaware and a lot of the urban designers would come and sponsor some of the Howard fashion shows. And so I started to make a lot of connections with the PR people at those brands when I was in college and got my first internship that way. Um, and so when I graduated from Howard, um, came back to New York and ended up getting a job working at the Source magazine. Um, it was an internship out of school. And that was kind of the beginnings of me kind of seeing what it was like to be at a magazine. Granted, the source, you know, hip hop magazine. So it wasn't really fashion focused, but I was a fashion assistant and kind of saw a little bit of what it took to do the shoots there. Um, and then after Howard, I was going to FIT and I did a fashion merchandising program. And while there, um, I got a job working at Wilhelmina Models. Um, they had it posted on their job board that they were looking for. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they have a really good job board. Um, but they had a job posting for a model agent. They were looking for like a junior agent to come on board and assist the model bookers. And I knew I didn't want to be a booker necessarily in my career, but I just wanted my foot in the door. And so I applied and I got the job. And that was like my first real job in publishing was working at Wilhelmina. And that was great because I got to see kind of all of the different pieces come together because you are working with models, but then you're working with casting agencies. You're working with the editors at the magazines when they're doing model calls and casting for their photo shoots. So you kind of get to see every kind of piece of the puzzle and how it comes together. And that really helped inform my knowledge of, of, the, of the industry and the different kinds of careers that are, that are open. Phenomenal, phenomenal. Then you end up at Condé Nast. Yes. So that was through Wilhelmina as well. Really? You know, one of the things that I learned early on is, you know, it's the relationships. And you know me, I'm... The quiet storm. <laughs> you know, I'm more shy and reserved. I'm not the girl that would come in, especially back then, and just like bust up in the room and be there trying to network. But I was very much like a follow. I was a follow up person. So um, and if I met you, I'd find a way to get to you. <laughs> right. So maybe I might not have said something at the time. But I'd find, figure out what your email address was and I'd stalk you that way. You were ambitious and assertive, <laughs> yes, obviously. In my own way. Um, so while I was at Wilhelmina, one of the bookers there knew that I always wanted to work in publishing. And she was friends with the then bookings editor of Allure, who had let her know that they were looking to hire a fashion assistant. They wanted someone to work in the closet. And that was like the dream. I was like, oh, my God, I want to, you know, work at Condé Nast. And so, like, you know, I gave her my resume and she 
um, passed it along and I interviewed and I got the job. So that was how I got my first magazine job um, working at Allure. I was a fashion assistant in the fashion closet and I worked uh, at Allure for about five years. I was like, you were there for a while. Yeah. That, so that was my first job. And it was, you know, very Devil Wears Prada. Right. <laughs> very, very Devil Wears Prada. We remember the days. Yes. I mean, these kids, the things that, you know, I did then, like, no, these kids are not going through it anymore. Oh, I remember us on the <laughs> phone. I remember <laughs> you trying to wrangle looks for the Met Ball like 48 hours before. Yep. Yep. <laughs> yes. The stories were crazy. Um, but it was a great kind of learning ground um, because that's where I met Paul Cavaco, who, the icon, you know, the, the icon, man. the legend. Um, but again, like he's someone who also resonated with me because he just was very humble. And, I, you know, when I started out and I looked at people who worked in the industry, I always saw these kind of like really big personalities. And I always felt like, is there a place for me in this world? Because I've. I'm not that girl. Right. Um, and could I find my niche and be true to who I was um, without trying to be something that I'm not, without trying to force myself outside my comfort zone to a certain extent? And he was the first person I saw who, you know, was so respected, had done so much, but was so humble, you know, walked around that office with his like same New Balance sneakers on and his denim the jeans and his little, he had his like little uniform, like so unassuming. And but he did the work. And I remember those times I'd be in the closet. He'd be there till the wee hours of the night. And he just he saw me. He took the time to just know me, you know, at a time where, you know, I didn't feel like I fit in. I mean, the first day I walked into Condé Nast, I had I look so Brooklyn. I mean, I had on like my door knocker earrings. Like I thought I was I thought I was doing it. I But you were. I was. But maybe not for them. Right. <laughs> the girls were looking like, oh, you know, and the girls, the girls had their like designer clothes. The assistants had on their design. I'm like, how can you, how are you affording the Prada look? You know, so I just was like, am I, is there a space for me here? And he just, you know, he saw me. He saw me. He made time to talk to me, get to know who I was. And I just respected the fact that he, he was so down to earth yet so accomplished. And he just, after all he had done, still worked so hard and you could see the passion. And so that that really resonated with me. And then again, just like learning from the the best, I would watch him in the closet when he would be doing his um, styling out, prepping for his photo shoot and his his process, his method of how he would um, create his looks. He just was so, um, there was such a process in how he built together, how he put, to, put together his shoots. And, you know, people see the finished product and they don't necessarily know all of what went into it. And he had such a process. He was so meticulous, had such a great eye, but just very down to earth. And I just studied him and watched him. And, um, yeah, and I ended up being there for five years and worked my way up out of the closet eventually. Um, and by the time I left Delore, I was an associate market editor um, and got to work with a lot of the other editors there on their photo shoots. And and that's where you get your pedigree for these absolutely beautiful, stunning images because Paul Cavaco and that team just, you know, delivered the most beautiful images month after month after month. And that's what the team was known for. Yes. And I mean, you know, the other thing, too, I'll say about Paul was, um, you know, in the years after I left Allure, he really championed a lot of diversity there. When I started, I mean, I was probably one of the only faces of color that I saw there. And then eventually... Um, that whole team at Allure at one point were all black and brown folks. You know, it was like the fashion director was black. The market editor was black. It was all it was. And to see that at Condé Nast, to see a whole fashion department 
where everyone is of color, that was really inspiring for him, you know, to see. So, you know, he also really was about it and really championed a lot of change and diversity there as well. Um, but again, yeah, his his eye was impeccable and just the level of um, professionalism and the, the eye and the way even, you know, Allure's a beauty magazine, but even just how he would approach the beauty shoots. Right. You know, like everything was a was a was a fully fleshed out creative vision. I mean, yeah, I remember all of that. And um, obviously being there really opened the door for you to build exceptional relationships with all of the best luxury fashion and beauty brands in the world. You yeah. know, you I know you have access to everyone. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think um, now that I look back on it, I think I was lucky that I started there. Right. Um, because I was able to build those relationships then because what I would, you know, the first 10 years of my career, I spent it in what you would call like general market, you know, publications. And then the the last 10 years of my career, I've really been in the multicultural market. And I definitely saw the shift with regards to how the brands would treat the magazines once I went off to the multicultural market. So a lot of those same publicists that I worked with, with Ease, at Allure, and at a lot of those other magazines later when I went to Ebony and, and Essence and was trying to pull from those brands, there would have to be uncomfortable conversations had of, well, you, you know, you were loaning to Kerry Washington at Allure, but now at, at, at Essence, you're trying to give us the commercial looks and not the runway looks, you know, but holding brands accountable because there was a relationship there. So maybe... But because of your expertise, you were able to have this uncomfortable have that com- conversation. conversation. And hold them accountable. Yeah. And sometimes, you know, it would be something that, you know, would be uncomfortable, but, you know, these brands recognize that these were things that they had to do. And then, like you said, because of the relationship, I was able to kind of, to have those kinds of conversations with them in a, in a more seamless way. And make things happen. So after Allure, where did you go? So right after Laura, I went to Cosmo Girl. So Cosmo Girl is no longer, but it was it was pretty much like the Teen Vogue for Cosmo. You know, so now you're like, at Hearst. Yes. Yeah, so now I'm at Hearst. Okay. Yes. Yeah, so now I'm at Hearst, and so that was it was a completely different market now because it's the teen market. Right. So um, whereas Allure was a little bit more of a mature reader, more high fashion, Cosmo was more you know mass market, younger demographic. So you know it's funny because when I think back on my career, I feel like I've been really lucky because I've gotten to work at a lot of different kinds of books. So I have a lot of a very wide kind of, um, you know, Rolodex, I guess, of relationships, but then also knowing how to speak to a lot of different kinds of readers. So Cosmo was, you know, the young teenager, you know, Cosmo's content in general is always a little bit more saucy and more cheeky. But then it was a lot of like younger brands that I might not have been familiar with before. So I had to learn that market and it was going to a lot of trade shows finding more indie designers, more up-and-coming designers, working with a lot of young models, burgeoning models. So it was a fun a fun place to be because it was a, a lot like a younger kind of demographic and a lot more playful. So it was very different from Allure, but I think a good push for myself in terms of doing something different. Right, right. So Cosmo Girl then... So then where did I go after Cosmo Girl? So while I was at Cosmo, I was freelancing which that was new for me. So just from relationships that I started building, people will call me and be like, oh, well, we need a freelance market editor for this. You know, can you help out with this shoot? So I was full-time at Cosmo, but then I would also work on these freelance projects. Later on in my career, I worked a lot with Paul Cavaco on his campaign and advertising work. Okay. So right after Cosmo, I went to Women's Wear Daily and I worked there with Roxanne Robinson Escrio, 
um, who uh, was the then accessories director there. She had been there for a really long time. And uh, I worked with her on a lot of their special edition issues. Um, Women's Wear Daily at the time used to do all of these quarterly accessories guides um, where they would cover all of the new trends of the season. So I worked on that. And then I also worked on the paper. So it was this... That was um, you getting back to journalism. So getting back to journalism. It was doing market work for the special editions, and then it was writing for the paper. Right. Um, so that was crazy in that the pace was completely different because prior to that, I had been working at magazines. It was monthly publications where the lead time is longer. You're working, you know, months out in advance. But at, at Women's Wear Daily on the paper, it's like every day. Every so, day. <laughs> so that and was... And you're having to write. And having to write. So um, that was a completely different animal because I wasn't used to um, turning around copy that quickly. However, I will say, this is where the schooling kind of, you know, plays in. When I was at Howard and I studied journalism, they didn't have, you know, a fashion journalism program. So the journalism that I was doing there was more like community reporting, going to like the community board meetings and things like that. Um, reporting on cu- current events and things like that. Um, but I was doing it for like the local paper and turning things around quickly. So even though I wasn't writing about fashion and something that re- I was really as passionate about, I had that muscle from when I did it at Howard. So right. when I had to eventually do it at Women's Wear Daily, I was able to kind of like lean back Second into that. Yeah, yeah, because I was doing it before at Howard. So there it was this dual role of doing the paper, covering, you know, daily trade news that was happening in the fashion industry and then doing the special issues and working on photo shoots. So it was a cool mix. It was a hybrid mix of doing the writing as well as still doing the creative, which is something that I really, you know, realized I, that's was my sweet spot of where I loved. So while doing all that, I was still freelancing. I freelanced with Vanity Fair and I worked with uh, Glamour and uh, Harper's Bazaar and all of these other magazines on special editions and different shoots that they were doing. And then from there, I went to OK Magazine. Nice. Completely different. Because now I'm at this kind of like, you know, celebrity gossip publication. And OK Magazine, when it came to fashion, it was more about celebrity fashion. So whereas before I was used to covering more high fashion when it comes to the runway and what's happening in that realm, at OK, it was really about through the perspective of celebrity, which I realize now was a great opportunity for me as well, because we see now it's all about celebrity fashion. Right. You know, and the people on the covers are the celebrities. That it's not definitely even about changed the uh, during our tenure in this space. Um, you know, media, you would have models on the cover and then it eventually changed to celebrities. And now with social media, that's what happened yeah. in order to grow your community. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So that time at OK was great in that, again, I had to learn a completely new market um, and the pace because, you know, it wasn't a daily, like women's wear daily, but it was still a weekly. So we were still producing a whole magazine that had to come out every week. So it was a lot of red carpet re- reporting um, at OK that those were a lot of the first times that I had actually done on camera work. It was a lot of, you know, you know, award season was like the busy, busy time doing the Oscars and Emmys and all of those shows. So you cut your teeth on everything. I did. <laughs> I did. So what happened? So where did you go after OK? OK, so I don't, at OK, I was a senior fashion editor. Yeah. And then I left there and I went to Essence. Okay. And, I, and then I was a senior fashion editor at Essence for a little while. Mm-hmm. Um, And then from there... I got the call to come to Ebony and be the fashion director there. And that was how I ended up going to Ebony for the first time, because this is actually my second time. And that was Ebony. a big cheerleading moment for our whole tribe. 
to see you step into that role. It was. And I, and it was, um, you know, it's it's interesting because, it, again, when I look at the trajectory, trajectory of my career, when I started out and I maybe dreamed up this, this idea of like where I would want to be as a girl who loves fashion, it always was the fashion magazines. You want to be at Vogue. You want to be at Bazaar. You want to be at Elle. But what was happening was I wasn't moving. I wasn't moving like a lot of my peers were. And I was like, well, what am I going to do? I'm going to sit here and wait to maybe get my shot to be a fashion director when I'm 30. You're talking about promotions. Yes. Yes. Which weren't happening. You know, you weren't seeing girls that look like me. They were being directors at these, you know, high fashion magazines. Now there are a lot more. But back then, and I'm saying back then, like this was, you know, this long ago, but it was, it you was know, fun, right? Yeah, back then it really didn't see us, and so there, there reached a point in my career about ten years in, where it was a decision of, are you going to still, are you going to try to stick it out at these fashion magazines and see if maybe you'll get your shot to become a director, or when the when the call came for me to become a director finally, and it was Ebony, it was like. Girl, go that to Ebony. Dream come true. Yeah, and yeah. it's because it's not only it's like it didn't matter matter that Ebony was in a fashion magazine. This is a, a iconic magazine that I grew up on. And how often in your career do you get to say that you've been at a, an iconic publication and that you have the chance to actually come there and make your mark? So it was a no brainer for me at that point. It was a shift, but I knew though that once I made the shift and went to multicultural, if I wanted to go back to fashion, it might be hard. Um, if that was something that I wanted later on in my career. But, you know, once moving to the other side, the other side, I say, but once moving to the other side, it was, you. I just felt like I was fed in another way there, that I wasn't on the other side, that it would be hard for me to want to go back. Right, right. So out of a deep desire of wanting to grow, you obviously moved on from Ebony at that time. And then where did you end up? Okay, so Ebony, I was there for seven years. Wow. <laughs> so I put in my time there. Um, and I was a fashion and beauty director there. And when I was there, um, it was the first time that I did beauty as well. Um, and Ebony was dual audience, so it was also men. So I had to also like cover men's fashion and grooming, which was a new thing as well. Um, but, you know, uh, my then editor at Ebony, um, Kieran Mayo, she left the publication to go to Interactive One. Um, where she was going to be starting um, a new men's lifestyle brand. And she also was going to be overseeing all of their different um, media brands. They have Hello Beautiful and Madame Noir and Boss Up and so many other places, uh, so, so many other brands. And so she uh, she basically poached me <laughs> to right. come with her to uh, Interactive One. And I was just excited about the opportunity to go there and be able to create something from scratch. So right. I went there. Um, I became the executive director of style and special projects, which was really fun for me because I got to create, um, you know, a lot of shoots for their different brands and ideate around branded content. That's when I started working with a lot of partners, um, and brand then be- partners, brand partners. Mm-hmm. And then, um, and then we launched this, this men's brand, Cassius, and it was a, you know, this, uh, lifestyle brand for young millennial men of color. Uh, so that was exciting to be a part of something from scratch and to also now have digital experience because prior to that, you know, I had mainly worked in print. I had worked in digital as well, you know, here and there. But this was the first time that I had a role that was solely in the digital realm, which I also knew at this point in career was crucial for me being able to move forward and, and still remain competitive in this industry. I hear you. I hear you. 
So then. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So then I did that for almost three years. Um, And then, and then Essence came calling again. Right. (laughs) And then, and I went on back. Um, I went back to Essence as a fashion director. At an exciting time. At an exciting time. It was then um, bought by Richie Lou Dennis Mm -hmm. and there's, it's black owned again. Mm-hmm. And um, you are leading the charge there and did fantastic work. And then you moved on to your current position. Yes. So I did that. And now I'm back at Ebony, <laughs> of course. And I mean, when that call came, it was just really, really exciting. You know, I think that was a pivotal moment in my career and that, you know, you dream about certain things. And, you know, I don't think at this point in my career that I had ever dreamt of becoming an editor-in-chief. Um, for me, for many years, it was, you want to be a fashion director. And that was a thing that I was working towards for so many years. And then it happened. And then it's yes. like, okay, well, what now? And then I got the call. Um, and Ebony, again, was at a really exciting time, as Essence was when I came back, where the brand had recently been bought out of bankruptcy. Um, the Bridgmans had purchased the brand and had this young, fresh CEO who had a vision for really wanting to revamp the brand. But the other piece of it would be that this was the first time that Ebony was digital only, um, you know, doing some print here and there. But really, the focus was to usher in Ebony as this kind of digital first media brand. And so the challenge of what that could look like was scary, but also really exciting um, to get to come in and have a chance to put, you know, my, my stamp and vision on the brand and what that could be um, was just really exciting. And so I, you know, I couldn't couldn't say no. And it was a job that. You know, Nana loved all the jobs, but that job when was Nana found, she was like, oh, my God, like that. It was like such a full circle moment. So, you know, I couldn't say no to that. And you came in like thunder. Oh, thunder. <laughs> um, so many beautiful covers and images. And let's talk about that. Who were those first covers? Yeah. So so for me, I knew that in coming into Ebony, I had to make a big impact in a short amount of time. You know, as you know, media moves at light speed and, you know, you don't have a lot of opportunities to really make that mark with the reader, especially in today's landscape where they have so many options. And um, because Ebony had been through so many changes, I knew that we had to do something that was really going to resonate with people. And then that's where I really tapped into my background in doing photo shoots and fashion and the creative. Um, And I thought about, you know, how could we you know, bridge this gap for the digital first reader who we know is younger and then the, you know, legacy reader who is a more mature reader. You know, you don't want to just abandon them, but we are digital first and we know that the kids are the ones that are on these platforms. So we have to find a way to marry the two. So I thought about, you know, what is the piece of content that Ebony is really known for and that's coveted? And I mean, it's the covers, you know, um, it's 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 interesting because no matter the age, there's just this reverence for the covers. You know, I was seeing people on social media just doing their takes on these ebony covers, just organically, not not you know, not tied to anything specifically, but just seeing these images and being inspired. And so I knew that that was a, that was a sweet spot that really would resonate with anyone, no matter the age. Um, so that was kind of the the thing that I made my mission early on. Okay, let's make it about reimagining the covers. How can we make them more innovative, not just with who we put on them, but how do we incorporate video and other things that can just make them feel fresher for social media as you're swiping through the scroll, like what's going to make you want to stop, right? Right. That's how I thought about like, what's going to make you stop? And it's going to be seeing something that's moving, something that's compelling. 
So that very first cover we did was Lena Waithe. Wow. And I remember. I mean, yeah. And so she, I think that was important for a lot of reasons. For one, um, you know, for me, she represented what I wanted this new chapter for Ebony to be. Um, you know, the celebrity that represents, you know, being bold, being unapologetic, someone who also has a reverence for the past, but, but also very future forward. And she really embodies all those things. And then I also say, you know, as Ebony kind of had transitioned through the years, we had been pretty safe with a lot of who even got to be on a cover. Right. And it was a lot of, rep- you know, repetition of Denzel Washington again, who Halle we love. Berry again, who, who we, we love. love, who we love. <laughs> However, you know, there was kind of a new guard of Black talent that wasn't being acknowledged. And, you know, Lena is someone who I think really represents the now and the future and you know, has so many, you know, she just represents so much for so many. And so I think having her as the first really would make that statement of like, oh, okay, Ebony, like we see, what, okay, we see where you guys are going with this. All right. And she was just bold. I mean, she signed up before she even knew what it was going to be, yeah. <laughs> you know, because there wasn't a blueprint for her to know what the first digital cover was going to look like. But I get but, the sheer excitement. Yeah. It was just like, but this is Ebony and she's a Chicago girl. So it was just, I'm in whatever it is I'm in. And so she took that that chance on us for the first one and, you know, was so gracious. And that cover came out and, and folks were like, OK, Ebony, like we, we OK, let's see what you guys are doing. And from there, it just became this like, you know, back to back kind of, you know, we started doing them every month and seeing kind of the the feedback that we're getting in the, in the social media, you know, in, in the comments and everything with with each of the cover drops. And that, I think, is the beauty of us being in digital and being on social is that you can see in real time what people are thinking. Right. It's not, you know, you may not like it all, (laughs) (laughs) but, you know, you can see the feedback in real time and move accordingly. And so, um, you know, Lena was our first. And then I'm I'm trying to even remember who we had for year one. Um, We got to take a lot of risks because we had the Lenas, but then one of the early covers we had was um, a music artist, Toby Nwigwe. Love that. And Toby, like, you know, he's someone who's not a household name, but like he represented, again, Black creatives, visionary, you know, young, has this young family and you see him with his beautiful kids. And, you know, it was a risk in putting him on our cover early on with his family. He wasn't someone who everyone knew. But I was like, let's just see, you know, he's doing great things. And Ebony also needs to be bold with the choices we make. And tap people early on in their careers, right. you know, because I think that was what we kind of stopped doing is, mm-hmm. you know, we we kind of wait. Then Vogue gets them or Elle gets them. They put them on the cover and then now they like skyrocket and then there's no coming back now when we should be owning our creatives. We should be owning our visionaries and we should be giving them those first opportunities, not these other outlets. So he was one of those that, you know, I felt was important to acknowledge early on. And then shortly after, I mean, he's he I mean, he just did the Transformers film, you know, and he's been everywhere. I've seen him on red carpets at so many award shows. Yeah. And his beautiful wife. Yeah. Yeah. That's been wonderful. But you had Carl Anthony Towns. Carl Anthony Towns. We had Jennifer Hudson. We had Nas. Um, So year one, we kind of came out swinging. And and with each year, they started getting bigger and bigger. Right. Um, And then I would say, you know, by the end of, you know, year one. You know, we went into year two with some big viral moments um, at the top of February of last year um, when Andre Leon Talley had passed away. 
Um, we hustled quickly and did this kind of illustrated commemorative cover oh, honoring so him. And, um, you know, there became all this buzz around that Ebony did what Vogue should have done because Vogue did not give him a cover. And this is someone who's synonymous with Vogue. So it was, we were in the conversation as being leaders in the space. Um, and then we also were kind of owning the narrative because a lot of people don't know that Andre Leontali actually started out at Ebony as a fashion editor at Ebony before going on to Vogue. So we, it was also like, you know, we need to let them know, like, you know, we can come on home because he was here first. Right. You know, right. anyone, like everyone walked these halls at some point, you know, and so that was important for us to do. And I mean, we just, we've had so many great moments that went viral. We also had, um, Tiana Taylor. Um, that was another great cover with a young black family that people loved. We did Tiana Taylor and her husband, Iman Shumper and their kids. That was everywhere. And you've had some controversial covers. <laughs> we've, we've, we've had, we've had some controversial, um, at the top of this year, we had Jonathan Majors. Yes. And um, that was a, a an important conversation that we wanted to have, though, because we did two covers with him. Um, one cover, he's kind of like sprawled out and shirtless, given the eye candy thing. Um, and then the second cover, we had him kind of in this like almost like 1970s inspired, like pimp daddy, cold with like these boots that had a little bit of a heel and you know, and there were people that were in the comments like, oh, Ebony's emasculating the black man and, you know, you're making him look effeminate. And it was this whole thing. But it was intentional. You know, I wanted to have this conversation about, you know, the black man and how the black man presents. Um, in coming into this role, I wanted us to really lean into some areas that the brand hadn't been covering and lean into the white space. Um, and black men is a big space. You know, um, black women have Essence, they have Ebony, they have a lot of lifestyle publications that they can go to, but black men don't really have anything that's just for them. Right. You know, and so I felt like that could be a space that if we really lean into, we can own. And so, um, yeah, that cover ca caused a lot of controversy. Uh, a lot of people had things to say, but that's a good thing. You know, these are conversations we want to have. Um, that cover, I would say to date, was our biggest cover in terms of the conversation, viral moments. It was everywhere on television. It was picked up by, you know, all major outlets, you know, at the time. So that did a lot for us as well. Um, but we've had, you know, with each year, we've gotten um, larger and larger, you know, bigger and bigger cover stars. Um, but also, I think it's important to also tap into not everyone that necessarily is the household name, but just people who we just think are doing great things. We had uh, Jody Turner-Smith. Um, that was an you know, on our April cover, cover yeah. and that cover was really special for us because part of Ebony's mission um, also in this new iteration has really been about leaning into diaspora and tapping into the global community of black folks, not just here. You know, like being Caribbean, yeah. it's like, you know, I always felt like the brand kind of missed out on that piece of tapping into well, what about those of us in the Caribbean? What about those of us in Africa and Europe? And Jody really represented that kind of cross section because she's you know, lives in the UK. She was born in the UK, but her parents are Jamaican, you know, and that's not something that a lot of people know about her. Mm -hmm. And so we shot her in Jamaica and the cover story, she talks about being Jamaican and being Jamaican, but growing up in the UK and all of these different influences and how it shaped her as a black woman in the industry. So we felt that that was a conversation that we could own also. I love so. getting inside <laughs> your head in terms of, you know, the creative process and how you end up touching the zeitgeist of so many, you know, different moments. But there's a whole nother aspect of your job, senior vice president of programming. 
the business side. Um, and so, you know, we I also forgot to mention that you'd work for uh, prior to Ebony, Aisha Curry's brands and her publication mm-hmm. and and those brands. And so what um, and you also did some of that at Essence. So let's mm-hmm. talk about um, that aspect, the business aspect of what it is that you do. So it was a really exciting time to be working with Aisha Curry's Lifestyle Group as editorial director of AC Brands. Um, At the time, you know, Aisha was looking to launch, you know, her own media brand. You know, most folks know Aisha already within the lifestyle space. Um, She has a best-selling cookware line and folks love her for all of her commentary about being a mom. And she is a great chef and has had best-selling cookbooks. And so she had been offered a partnership with Meredith Publications to create her own lifestyle brand, um, kind of like in Everyday at Rachel Ray, Martha Stewart Living, that kind of thing, but for young women of color. And so um, she had tapped me to come on board as editorial director of um, not only the magazine, but I also got to work on um, various facets of her overall lifestyle um, brand that she was building out. So um, as editorial director of her magazine, which was called Sweet July, I was really responsible for helping her hone in on the vision for the magazine, the voice, the look and feel of the brand, what the articles would go in the magazine. It was a quarterly print edition. So, you know, we were working on issues several months out for spring, summer and fall, winter. And so I was really helping to helm the editorial content that went in the magazine and helped to um, work with the creative team on the overall look and feel of the magazine and a lot of the photo shoots and editorials that went in the in the book, hiring a lot of the writers that we brought on to pen a lot of those articles. And it just was a really beautiful magazine and something that I was super excited to be a part of. But the other exciting aspect of it was that I was also able to tap into my experience working with fashion brands and and young brands of color via Aisha's retail footprint. So, you know, Sweet July was also going to be coming to life via e-commerce. So I was on the launch team that helped launch the Sweet July website, worked on the design team with for that and kind of building out what the look and feel for that would be. Um, you know, we created a whole uh, curated hub of editorial articles that we wanted to have living on that site. And then you know, within the site, really building out a curation of uh, of stories that highlighted other Black business owners, women uh, entrepreneurs in the beauty and lifestyle space, which Aisha was really intentional about wanting to highlight. And then that then went in turn to the brick and mortar piece because Sweet July was also going to be a physical store in Oakland, the city that Aisha loves. And so I was really instrumental in helping to kind of create that synergy between not only the magazine, but the website and then the physical brick and mortar store. So creating that kind of overall integration across the brand with how it would show up at retail, helping Aisha identify Black-owned and entrepreneur of color-owned brands um, that she could feature in her retail space. And so because I had so many relationships working as a fashion editor and editor at so many other magazines, I was able to have really help her identify um, select brands for her to include when the when the store launched and people that we could be highlighting not only in the magazine, but also online. So it was a really exciting job because it was one where I, where I was able to really use 
all of these different skill sets that I had, not just as an editor, but also, um, you know, my relationships with retailers, with other, you know, entrepreneurs of color. And it was really this kind of full 360 experience. So that was the first time that I had a job that went beyond just being an editor and allowed me to have stake in, you know, a physical brick and mortar store, as well as e-commerce and just kind of bringing this lifestyle brand to life on all these different platforms. So I, you know, there is no, you can do all the creative things that you want, but if you're not finding ways to bridge the gap and make money, none of us are here. Right. (laughs) Right? (laughs) So for me, that's been a big piece of, of the job. So the programming aspect of my job is to take uh, the content that we're doing on the site and on our social platforms and to try to find ways to bring that to life in, in real life. Um, and one really big partnership that um, that I was super proud of that I spearheaded last year was uh, for a cover package that we did with the cast of Black Panther, Okay. Um, where we partnered with Google Pixel. And that was a really innovative partnership for Ebony because we shot that camera, that that cover with a camera uh, with their cell phone camera, that is. And um, that it started with, you know, basically Google came to me and they were like, we see what you guys have been doing with these covers. You know, the, the new Black Panther film is coming out. Are you guys doing with them, doing anything with them? And I already had secured that cover. Right. Um, they had actually come to me a year out prior to the film coming out, the Disney team that is saying, you know, we're shopping around you know, who to give this cover to. We've seen what you guys have been doing with these covers as well. And we love what you guys have been doing with the motion. And because Black Panther is this, you know, beautiful, you know, cinematic masterpiece as far as the visual, they felt excited about what we could dream up for our cover with that cast. And that's how we got it. And so I had already secured, you know, that we were going to have that cover um, and then one of my partners at the magazine um, on our sales team, she had been having, you know, some conversations with Google Pixel. And I told her, well, you know, we were going to have them for our Power 100 issue for November. Why don't we, you know, bring this to them and see if there's an opportunity here? And so that's what happened. You know, we let them know that we already had the Google, the uh, Black Panther team secured. And they were ecstatic about that, you know, because it's the biggest film of the year. And so, you know, I came up with this idea of why don't we shoot the um, the cover with the cell phone? And um, one of the things that I failed to to note earlier was when I started this job, I felt it was important for Ebony to hire a staff photographer. It's not something that a lot of magazines do anymore because, you know, most publications now want to use different photographers. That. But, um, you know, back in the day, it's something that a lot of the publications used to do. And for me, um, really honing in on our visual and having a signature look to our covers for me I think was very important in Ebony being able to distinguish itself from what everyone was doing and that's Keith so I hired Keith Major as a photo director his eye is legendary legendary. (laughs) and as you know you know working with talent I mean a lot of times they come in with their own list of who they want to have shoot them who they want to work with and it was never a question with Keith because he's so respected. So that speaks volumes as to, you know, who he is in the industry. So Google Pixel, again, was also excited when I told him that we had Keith. We have Keith. He's a legend. So it it just checked so many boxes from the partnership standpoint. Yeah. Because from Google to say that you have this legendary photographer who's been doing this for over three decades, 
that's like co-signing your cell phone and saying that this thing is Keith does not look ready, like he's you know? been working anywhere for no, three days. No, he doesn't. <laughs> Black don't crack, <laughs> you know. But um, it just it just was a perfect partnership for so, for so many. Um, and so we did this cover and Keith shot it with the cell phone. And uh, we also use CGI and virtual effects to add all these, you know, really cool elements to it that we worked with the Google Pixel team on as well. So the way that it came together was such a, you know, really great synergy, especially for this Disney film, you know. So it just came to life beautifully. But then where the programming piece comes in was the idea was to then find a way to activate at Power 100. And And what is Power 100? Yes. So Power 100 is Ebony's big kind of signature temple event. It's our longest running um, event that we've had at the brand for many, many decades where we celebrate the most influential um, Black folks across industries. You know, so everything from politics and fashion to um, even local community trailblazers. Um, we honor, you know, 100 and there's a beautiful gala dinner that we have uh, and in Los Angeles. In Los Angeles. Um, but it all starts with the editorial. So there's a list that typically when Ebony was in print would run in the magazine. Now it runs online. Um, and then the, lip, the list comes to life at the physical event that happens in Los Angeles in, in November. Okay. So, um, so Google Pixel, when I told them that I would make this a Power 100 issue, they loved that and they came on board and we ended up, they not only did they sponsor the cover, but they came on and ended up being one of the huge sponsors for uh, the actual gala. And we created an amazing activation at the event where the cover basically came to life. All of the uh, attendees could go to these kind of like different, um, you know, installations where there were kind of like they could reimagine the cover, um, shooting it with the camera, with the cell phone, the Google Pixel cell phone. Um, But there were these kind of different backdrops that you could choose from. And um, so it was great. So it's no secret that you know, over the last decade, the landscape of media and publishing has completely changed. Um, I'm so happy to hear that as in addition to the traditional sense of of working as an editor-in-chief and creating these beautiful images and and wonderful content that, you know, you professionally leaned into things digitally, but you also need to monetize the things and things. And that has changed so much. So what is the business behind media today? Like, how are, you know, these publications surviving when so much of the, you know, I know it's advertising, right? When so much of the advertising dollars are going to Meta. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I would say, you know. And Google. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Yeah, I mean, nowadays, I mean, it's really about fostering partnerships that are going to be mutually beneficial for both us and the client. I think that, you know, brands come to Ebony because they know that there's a certain, um, you know, legitimacy that we have and respect in the space. But at the same time, we need to let them know that if they're going to work with us, it also has to be advantageous for us in the long run. So what can we get from these partnerships that's also going to allow us to do different things from from a business standpoint and show up in ways that we may not be able to on our own? Um, and one really interesting partnership that we did uh, last year was with Olay. So what we did was we came up with an amazing partnership that allowed us to do a whole print issue dedicated to Black women that were studying STEM programs at HBCUs. 
Um, and so we found 10 women that we highlighted at these universities. And we did a whole magazine that highlighted Black women, not just at these schools, but in STEM careers in general. Um, so that what that allowed us to do was not only to get back in print, because it's something that Ebony hadn't been doing for a while because it's very expensive, um, but it also allowed us to shine a light on um, a sector of the world that isn't highlighted very often at all, which is these young Black women in the, at these schools and these programs at a time that, you know, there's so much work that, that needs to be done within STEM research. And there are these amazing Black students um, at these schools and these programs. And this allowed us to shine a light on them. What we also did was we partnered with Olay to create a mentorship program um, where these girls are being paired with women in these fields and able to get mentorship opportunities so that they can have kind of a first uh, step in the door when they come out of school. So it also was about giving back to the community and helping these girls to um, to move forward in their careers while also building Ebony's relationship with Olay and creating something new for us that we wouldn't have been able necessarily to do on our own, especially in year one of being a startup. Um I think it's I think it's really brilliant. I think the Power 100 event really shines the light on all the respective areas you touch. You have these phenomenal covers that rein you into the entertainment piece, the fashion and so forth. But when you peel back the curtains, you're seeing the fact that you are honoring folks in tech and STEM and doctors um attending Power uh, 100 in, in Beverly Hills, um, October, 2021, <laughs> yes, October yes, 2021. Yes, yes. Uh, it was, um, I, the, the woman who had her hand in developing the COVID vaccine yes. was honored. Kiss the me young, Corbett. Yes, yes. The young woman who won the young girl who won the bumblebee, mm -hmm. um, competition. Arlan, who, um, is what, you know, an amazing, mm -hmm. VC mm -hmm. was honored as well. And these are all these different spaces that you shine a light on. And I love that your programming touches upon so much more than just the entertainment or the fashion beauty piece. Yeah. And it's also a great um, way for us to activate with our partners as well, um, because we're able to, um, you know, one of the pieces of content that comes out of power leading up to it is the Power Talk C series, which is a new um you know, conversation series that we launched last year where we take some of the honorees and we engage in conversations much like this, okay. where we talk to them about their careers, allow them to shed light on the work that they're doing. Um, and we bring partners in to sponsor those as well um, and make sure that they're aligned with the different missions of the, the different guests that we're featuring. But that's another great way for us to not only create additional content out of power, but to also align our partners, again, with organic conversations that make sense. Um, and I think that that's kind of the way that Ebony has been approaching a lot of our partnerships. It's really about, you know, not just kind of sticking a partner in, you know, where we need to check a box, but really doing it in a way that feels organic and allows us to build upon, you know, those relationships. Um, another really interesting partnership that Ebony started is our partnership with Bloomberg. Wow. Which, um, you know, a lot of people wouldn't necessarily think of Ebony and Bloomberg, you know, partnering. Two media companies. Yes, yeah. Two media companies coming together. Um, but what's how it began was initially, you know, Bloomberg has their uh, Bloomberg Equality Initiative. That's all all about um, amplifying um, diversity and inclusion initiatives and having conversations around um, building financial wealth and, and equity. 
And so um, they had come to Ebony, um, you know, as leaders in the space to um, initially it started around kind of just sharing content. So Bloomberg wanted to share a special curation of articles that Ebony editors, myself and others from the team would choose to share on the Ebony platform. And then we in return did the same thing. So we would say, okay, Bloomberg, here are, you know, three articles from the Ebony Arsenal that we think your readers, you know, would love to share. You know, we'd love, we'd love to share with your readers as well. And so um, it started with us sharing content across our respective platforms and our newsletters, um, which then is exposing the Ebony audience, uh, the Ebony, the Ebony network to a massive range of new readers who maybe weren't, you know, looking at our content before. And, and same thing for Bloomberg. Um, and that that, you know, started doing so well for us that um, we just started kind of expanding the partnership. And so we were able to partner with Bloomberg last year in Cannes, where we were able to show up at the Cannes Lion Festival. And um, we did an activation there where um, we got to show up in Cannes and talk about the different initiatives that we're doing there. And it just gave us a whole nother level of exposure that um, was really beneficial for us as well, as we are also looking to kind of build upon our global presence and bridging that gap um, with our readers across the globe. Um, and then we showed up again with Bloomberg at South by Southwest at um, some activations that they were doing there as well. So we've, you know, fostered this really um, interesting partnership with them that has been really great for us. Um, they also showed up at Par Power 100 um, and they produced a special um, television series that they ran on Bloomberg TV uh, that was dedicated to, to the Power 100 list and covering the ceremony. And that, again, gave us, you know, such exposure. So you know, these sort of things help to to build the business and help to attract different partners that maybe weren't looking at us before. Um, one example is Mass Appeal, another media company that we've partnered with recently around the 50th anniversary of hip hop. They saw what we were doing with Bloomberg, another media brand, and they said, oh, wow, that's a really interesting partnership that Ebony is doing with them. You know, we'd love to kind of find some way that we could partner with them as well. And we had conversations with them and very, very organically um, came up with this idea of doing a special print edition um, around the 50th anniversary of hip hop. That... And tell us about Mass Appeal. Yeah, so Mass Appeal is Nas's media platform. Got it. Um, all dedicated to all things hip hop, you know, highlighting Next Gen as well I as knew some that. of the legends. I just wanted you to know. <laughs> I know, you know. <laughs> this, this for y'all, this for y'all. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, and so they they came to us. They saw what we had been doing with Bloomberg, another media company. And, you know, said, hey, you know, we're creating this, we have this massive movement around Hip Hop 50, and we want to do something, you know, really game-changing. Ebony is an iconic brand. What can we do to really honor this iconic moment in history? And so, you know, we kind of got the wheels turning and, uh, you know, said, what if we created this special commemorative issue? Um, but again, it costs money, <laughs> you know? Right. But we were able to bring in Google Pixel, who we had worked with from Par 100, who, you know, had, you know, was very integrated into the Hip Hop 50 campaign as well and looking to do things to activate with kind of upcoming burgeoning hip hop artists. And when we presented the idea to them, they, you know, were all on board to come on board and sponsor this issue. And so, you know, we're really excited because that's going to be coming out on September 19th. So that's what's <laughs> next for Ebony. Yes. <laughs> yes. Which is big because, you know, as you know, Ebony is not printing monthly. So this is a rare, you know, collector's edition. We're doing five special edition print covers. Oh, wow. Featuring a range of icons. Um, mm -hmm. 
But it's also not, not only about, you know, celebrating the culture and, and how it really has impacted global culture, but also um, the business of hip hop and how it really has been game changing from a monetary perspective, really highlighting the trailblazers that have gone into other genres like film and television and have have, you know, created so many opportunities for the next generation. Um, so, you know, we're really excited about it. And one of the other things, too, that makes it really special is this this will be the first time that Ebony is available internationally since the John Johnson days, which is, you know, really huge. The book will be sold in London, will be in Lagos, Nigeria, will be in Ghana and Accra, and will also be in South Africa and Johannesburg and Cape Town. Phenomenal. So, you know, really excited about that, um, especially again, as we continue this mission of expanding Ebony's global, you know, reach and just connecting with Black folks all over the world and ha- having everyone feel that connectivity to the to the book. So what's yeah. next for Marielle? Oh, what's next for Marielle? That's a good question. (laughs) I mean, I think for me, it's really about just continuing to make an impact in um, the lives of of people who look like me. I think that that's really become my mission. Uh, When I started out, you know, as a young girl who wanted to just work in fashion, it was just, I want to make, take pretty pictures and, (laughs) you know, work on these shoots. Um, But the the impact that I've been able to have in not only, you know, creating imagery that resonates with so many, but also in creating opportunities for so many, finding that young writer and giving them their first byline, finding that young photographer and giving them their first, you know, photo shoot that got published. Um, those sort of opportunities are ones that I still want to create. Um, so I think it's just continuing to do work that allows me to give opportunities to young creators. Um, giving them a space where their work can be seen um, on the on the biggest stages and supporting them as they build their brands and, and you know, build upon what they're creating. So, Mario, I have one more question for you. What's one piece of advice that you would give someone who's interested in embarking on a career in media? Um, to be, I mean, it's hard to give one. It's hard to give one. Give a few. (laughs) (laughs) One, there's a few things I would say. Um, I would say first for the kids now to take advantage of social media for your networking purposes. Uh, When I started out, you know, it was a lot harder to connect with people in the industry. So I would say use social media as your friend to try to connect. However, be professional when you do your outreach. Um, I have... Quite often, people who will slide into the DMs or hit me up on LinkedIn, which I'm always excited to respond to. But, you know, maintaining the professionalism, even though you have the access now. So if you're looking for an internship or you're looking for an adv- advice or even just, an, you know, uh, um, uh, you want a, a conversation on just kind of advice on what to do, um, be professional in how you go about the ask um, and be clear in what you're looking for, what your goal is in the ask. Um, cause very often I'll have people reach out to me and, and just say, Hey, you know, I'm, I really want to, I, I want to do something in fashion. You inspire me, but either the request will be very casual, you know, not very professional and how they're, they're reaching out or they kind of don't really know what they're looking to ask you at all. <laughs> so I would say be clear and targeted, use social media, but be clear and targeted when you make the ask and what you're looking for and be professional when you use the tool. So that would be one thing. Right. One thing. The other thing that I would say is, you know, 
that you have to do the work. You know, I think that um, I've seen a lot of young people move up faster in their careers than 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 it than they did when I started out. Um, you see a lot of young editors and directors, which is great, um, but you still have to know to, how to do the work. And I think that just because you might move up a little bit faster in your career doesn't mean that you still don't need to know how to do the core things. Um, and I think still make sure that you're, you know, you know the tenets of writing. Um, make sure you know who the notables are in the industry and you know who to follow and you stay tapped into who's next. Um, because at the end of the, the day, those things will be what keeps you around. Um, you know, I was lucky in that I learned how to do a lot of things, which at the time I didn't necessarily realize were all going to serve me in the way that, ways that they have. But I do think that it's the reason why um, I've been able to maintain such a long career, um, whereas some of my peers haven't necessarily been able to stick around. You have to be malleable and flexible. So I know I've, I've said a lot of different things. No, they're but the all core spot things on. would be, you know, use social media because I wish I had it when I was their age. Um, but know how to use it. Be targeted and be a professional. And then the big number two would be, um, you know, to do, you know, you have to do your homework. You have to have a diverse skill set. Know how to, you know, do a lot of the core things that an editor today has to do, which is you need to know how to write. You can't get it. You can't use AI and think that you don't need to know how to write just because you can you can use AI to craft your press release or whatever it is that you're doing. You need to know how to write. Um, you'd be surprised how many don't. <laughs> right. And then, um, you know, just knowing the core things, core elements of the business, know who people are, know who the photographers are, know who the legends are, study from them. Um, there's something that you can take from all who came before you. So definitely, I would say lean into that. Nicely said. Thank you, Marielle. Well, as I said, you are a force. This is Marielle Bobo, Editor-in-Chief of Ebony Media and Senior Vice President of Programming. Thank you for being here, Marielle. Thank you so much. This was so fun. How do we find you? You can find me on uh, Instagram at, at Marielle Bobo. Um, and you can check out Ebony at, at Ebony Magazine. Okay, this is Yumindi Francis, and you can find us on Instagram at What's Next with Yumindi. And you can find me on LinkedIn at Yumindi Francis and on Instagram at Yumindi360. Bye.